welcome to the City Road Podcast. Join us on City Road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research. Follow us on Apple Podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org. When we hear the term smart cities or smart homes, it usually conjures up images of driverless cars and coffee machines that know when we're about to wake up. But the digital transformation of our lives is a bit more complex than that. In this episode of City Road Podcast, the University of Sydney's Robin Dowling and Sophia Malson take a look at examples of how cities can use digital technologies to plan for the future. Robin and Sophia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dallas. Thank you. I guess the first place to start here is for one of you to give me a definition of what a what digital transformation is and how we should think about digital transformation in cities. Okay, um, I might jump in first then. Um, so in terms of the city, what we're seeing, we've always had this sort of progression of networked um, and wired cities since at least the 50s and 60s onwards. Um, but recently there's been sort of a step change in the data that we can collect and the digital sort of infrastructure that underpins that, uh, which relates a lot to big data. Um, And so we're seeing the, I guess, the much more rapid transformation and control and responsive cities through the collection of that um, data. And of course, that's underpinned by the digital. Yeah, so largely we've had digital cities for a long time, but I guess what you're saying is that now it's the size of the data that's traveling through these digital networks that's changed. Robin, did you have something to add? Well, and it's also that the digital is seen to be able to solve a whole heap of urban problems so that digital forms of engagement, you might get better community consultation if you engage people digitally rather than trying to get them to come to a town hall meeting or that the digital might be more efficient use of resources, so waste management through smart bins, for example. So things that are smart are seen to be more efficient either, so therefore cheaper sometimes for government or a better way to engage a broader sense of a community. Hmm. So Sophie, you've worked on the Dublin dashboard and this, is, I guess, is a an example of the digital or smart city. So what yeah. is the Dublin the, dashboard? Right. So the Dublin dashboard is a city metrics Uh, dashboard. So an interface for anyone in Dublin or anyone over the world to look at and interact with the city data. So for example, if you wanted to know what the traffic was in real time when you're heading home on the um, whether to take a congested route, you'd be able to uh, click on that section of the dashboard and get traffic updates. So essentially, it's just an interface. Right. Where does all of this data come from? Uh, That's a good question. Um, So a lot of the data Uh, And this is actually probably one of the most interesting stories that came out of the dashboard was that what you want to show is really restricted by what data is available. So talking about smart cities before and the data collection of the digital layers underpinning cities, you have things like sensors that can relate information about traffic in real time. They can relate information about available parking spaces in real time. But then you have data sets about the city you want to know about which aren't related in real time. So we started off with, um, I'd say, about 40 sets of data that we wanted to display. By the end of the project, looking at the data we could actually find available, that was reduced to probably around 20. And then after that, it came down to a question of what was the regularity of the data. So 
census data shows us something, but you don't really want to visualize something on a dashboard that's only relevant every four years. So the data that we show is very much dependent on the frequency and what's available. Right. So in many ways, the data drives what we know about the city in some ways. There's kind of like a politics of data and Mm -hmm. what we know all tied up there. Yeah. How how do you go about researching something like a Dublin dashboard? Right. Um, So this project was um, actually quite an amazing project to work on. So we actually started the dashboard from scratch. So the research itself came, um, followed the project through. So we documented every meeting we had with uh, Dublin City Council and various stakeholders. We went around my um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Gavin McArdle, who de- he was our software uh, developer. So he did the actual physical development of the dashboard. Um, with Gavin and Rob Kitchen, Professor Rob Kitchen, uh, we we went into um, regular liaisons with Dublin City Council, sort of scoping as well, because we had to, it, it was a project we wanted to make sure it had practical applications. So that helped Dublin City Council's, I guess, direction helped shape the dashboard as well. Uh, so basically, to research a project like that, it was um, ethnographic research on that project. And following that through, all the decisions and the data just around the data, which I just mentioned, mm. also the design decisions, um, how you visualise it, what's most effective. And one of the better things that I think came out of that as well was the information that gave to Dublin City Council and that their data collecting practices weren't standard across the council. There was a lot of silo, um, silos of information happening. And so they have enacted a data strategy that standardizes that. And hopefully in JSON files, uh, which provides, makes it easier to just plug into the dashboard and update in real time. Right. Yeah. So that's really fascinating. Can you just tell me a little bit about how you do digital ethnography? Yeah, sure. Um, so my background as an anthropologist, I'm trained in ethnography, which is generally, I would say, can be described as really embedded uh, research within a particular field site. So my research group would be both the developers, the researchers and Dublin City Council. And so part of that was a lot of participant observation. So as I said, I would attend every meeting, I would take notes, I would follow Gavin around, um, shadow him a lot. So, um, so as someone's coding, you're literally standing next to them, writing yeah. down in an ethnographic fashion what they're doing. Yeah. And commenting on a lot of the discussions we had about um, the visuals, how to present the dashboard visually. Um, And so I'd be writing it down and we would have information, uh, I guess, requests from our boss. And then Gavin and I would go away and we'd trial and error it. He'd do most of the controls on the computer and I'd be giving feedback. And so I documented all of those. Um, And... You know, and then you just do the the analysis of yeah. interviews. What yeah. I really like about that is that we tend to think of the digital occurring in some abstract cyber space, but what this shows is now actually creating the digital or doing the digital mm. actually occurs in the real world. And I think the ethnographic work really shows that actually digital stuff occurs in the world. And I think yeah. that that's part of both of what you were arguing. And I think the important thing there as well is that a lot of people think that technology is a neutral thing, you know, that it's it has no sort of bias integrated into it. But the way that we're developing things, uh, you know, the way we made the dashboard has our own research agenda put into it and how our own agenda of what we wanted to the, the uh, dashboard to look like. So even at that coded level, there's a lot of 
bias and influence going in that, you know, people don't see. So, Robin, that sounds like one version of what the smart city is. Um, Are Australian smart cities different or are indeed they smart? Australian cities haven't actually taken on dashboards, I don't think, in a large way, precisely because what Sophie identified, the amount of real-time data that is publicly available, and this comes back to the politics of data, so that we might have communication carriers, they have an amazing set of data about where people are in the city and what they might be doing about the city. That's not publicly available, or if it is available, it's for a fee. So the dashboards have not been as common. So I think there's some interesting... um, Australian cities are known to be a bit laggard in the smart city space, but there are some things they're using. There's a pin board, a notion of a pin board, which is a bit like a, da- a, a community engagement tool where you sort of will put your, if you're planning a redevelopment of a site, it's a way to have a sort of an interface where people can say, hey, this is what I think of this, or you put up pictures. Mm. So those sorts of things are happening. So who owns this infrastructure that col- actually collects the data that we might push into a dashboard? It's owned by a variety of, um, whether they be communication providers, there are a lot of tech companies involved, so the big um, IT companies have platforms or proprietary software, essentially, that is collecting and producing data all the time. And in fact, they've been the ones, if you think about some of the Australian smart cities that are around, uh, like Townsville, have all been sort of, the impetus has come from corporations who are interested in transforming the city in a data digitally driven way. Mm. And that's where lots of the critiques of the smart city have come from. It's like we've got these corporations who have particular interests and that might be driving the smart city in a particular direction that might leave some people out. The the public-private distinction seems important here and the whole notion of the smart city as well. How should we think about this intellectually? Intellectually, the, the, the interesting questions are how are, they, how are they being made? So rather than to assume that, well, there's a smart city, it must be bad because it's been corporate-driven and that there are examples of a, you know, a, the Dublin city trying to implement a smart city must be good, it's actually thinking about how are they interacting, what is enabling them to happen, and in the process, who is being um, empowered, who is being left out, and what, how are they transforming our actual urban spaces? So... I think the research questions are the how questions. What what is happening? How mm. is it happening? Let's get into the how and and what is happening. And Sophie, you've been looking at share housing and smart homes. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? Yeah. Um, so this idea about what a smart home is, as my background's uh, from very much the smart city, I guess space. I've been seeing what's been happening in smart homes is that there's an interesting parallel with smart housing and smart cities, and they never meet. So why, don't, why don't you start by telling us what a smart, smart home, home is? is. Okay, yeah. well, so traditionally a smart home um, is uh, a home that's sort of been, I guess, supplement, supplemented or uh, sort of layered on with various forms of technology. So in the 50s, that was to the 60s, that was wired homes. In the 80s, that becomes this smart kind of, term but not in the smart that we know it now and then for the last couple of years it's taken on that smart leap in relation to the internet of things so when now we're talking about smart homes the vision is to do with your appliances talking to each other um, all of your systems being interconnected that's not really happening yet Um, so 
particularly, that's why I'm linking smart homes, I guess redefining them to a broader definition which incorporates the fundamental smart approaches that we see in the smart city, but in this term applying them to accessing housing and to the actual making of home. So, for example, by that I mean the obvious of like smart meters, which help optimise your resource consumption and manage that, but also in terms of the applications that we use to manage our houses now. So airtasker.com if you want something uh, done, which you don't have the the skills or the tools to do. Also online um, housing platforms and renting and sharing platforms. Mm-hmm. So where the share housing comes in um, is I'm really interested in the intersection of smart and sharing because, you know, more and more people are sharing and renting for longer because we can't afford to own our own homes. So some startups, particularly in the US, are starting to provide share housing, which is basically facilitated through an online system and an app. So it's bringing that, um, I guess, that service factor that we expect of other smart uh, things, I guess, like smart cities, smart communications to the housing realm. And so that means, for example, that you can just go on to your app, you can book your room, communicate with your landlord via the app and all of those systems become integrated. So it's essentially what they wanted to say was disrupting the housing market, which they they don't think has potentially been digitally disrupted disrupted yet. So for me, smart housing is not just the technologies in the home, but the broader smart approach Mm. that frames it. So sort of smart housing to solve a lot of the problems that unsmart housing has created in the past. So housing affordability and perhaps technology can be a player in solving some of those problems. exactly. Yeah. I'd like to touch on a couple of those ideas in there, maybe Robin, Mm. with you. Mm. I think the idea of smart, I think the idea of disruptive. Mm. How should we understand these terms, I guess, in kind of academic in the academic language that we use? Are are these marketing tools, are they credible ideas? Will we see a disruption? And if we will, what sort of disruption will it be? That's a a very good question in the sense that we don't, when people say smart, they mean so many different things. Uh, It could be digital, it can be the internet, it can just be communication, it can be apps, um, it could be, you know, it could just be rhetoric. I mean, people often joke, you know, well, you don't want to be a dumb city. Um, but what I think academically is to think through that idea, and I think in the Australian case, smart and innovation are actually coming to mean the same thing. So if you take the federal government has a smart cities and suburbs program, and what it is was originally launched as part of a federal government innovation agenda that sort of went little bit quiet but it was the idea is that you know if we want to be innovative whatever that might mean then we need to be smart so that the idea is that smart and technology become the same thing that we know that you can do things smarter or you can do innovative things without using technology but they've become sort of quite um, connected and I think that's sometimes also because what um, scholars and, and policymakers see as disruptive innovations have in the last 20 years being connected to technology. So whether that be through new platforms like Uber or Airbnb, so software platforms, which are essentially a technological intervention into a market. At one level, that's what they are, but they are also an organisational intervention. So we've got new companies coming in and doing completely different things than what, you know, Airbnb is not a hotel company, and that's quite important. Uber is not a taxi company. So it's a combination of what those 
what interesting word uh, that smart and technology are doing similar work together, but they're not the same. What's the role for government in this, in the new disruptive space? Mm. Because it feels sometimes from the outside that digital disruption is a is a non-government space. It's a space for the private sector, for other actors. Is is that true? I would say it depends on what sector. So the role for government, I think, is in, in t- at least two ways. So one is that where it is a private sector activity, there's always going to be a role for government to guarantee uh, social equity and environmental outcomes, that, that these new ways of doing things in the city have implications for people. And one of the things that government does is to make sure that that you know, that, that that is not going to exacerbate inequality, etc. I guess the other thing, it depends on the disruption. So if we think about something like car sharing, which is a technological disruption in the transport space and a cultural disruption, so it's about people sharing a car rather than owning a car. And given that car sharing, there is some evidence that there's quite environmental benefit to car sharing, gets cars off the road, people don't own, so you don't have that embodied energy. So sustainability, they're actually, so car sharing is a sustainable transport option. The role for government in that sort of case is to actually, well, can they provide the supports for that to keep going, mm. to, to increase uptake and those sorts of things. And you've done quite a bit of research on this, haven't you? I have on, on car sharing. And, yeah. and the, the thing that government did in the car sharing space was they use the normal tools they've got available to them as planners, which is interesting. So they didn't actually have to innovate in a policy sense. It was like, we have the policy tools here. In the case of car sharing, it's around parking. We have the pools that we can regulate parking. We can give away parking spaces or we can rent parking spaces to car sharing organisations. We can make it easy for people to access it and we can move on. So they didn't do anything major. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in there too about um, government's role in smart cities because the other, I guess, end of the spectrum is, and what's kind of really encouraged in a lot of the smart city policies, is actually to encourage a sort of entrepreneurial and innovative bottom-up activity from citizens. And so again, when I was in Ireland, there was a big sort of overall support for initiatives such as Code for Ireland, various hackathons, Code for Good, um, and really utilising your citizens as a resource to solve urban problems. Again, in these situations, citizens would then go back to whichever office or whoever was, you know, the appropriate department, suggest their ideas. And certainly at a local government level, they were taken quite seriously and taken on board. I guess the flip side of that is that that's also an advantage for the government because they're essentially um, out-resourcing what would initially They're already outsourcing. Yeah, outsourcing, (laughs) thank you. The job that they should have been doing, basically. So if we applied that to your research, and I think it's particularly looking at young people and housing, how could we bottom up using technology, the housing system? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Well, I'm wondering, and I know you're aware of RentBerry coming Mm. out. What is RentBerry? RentBerry is a platform uh, for housing. It's supposed, and for rental housing, I should say, it's supposed to um, make the the process more transparent. Essentially, it's like the eBay for renting. So a landlord will list their listing and renters compete in terms. They offer the rent that they're willing to um, pay for it and the landlord can choose. It's not just about money, though, because the the profile, the rental 
uh, I guess the renters profiles are up there so the landlord can look at them and choose whether they're the right person for them and the same way the landlords can be rented so it's supposed to mm-hmm. make it more transparent I a lot of people though are arguing that what it'll actually do is further disadvantage rented. renters yep. because now they're being profiled mm-hmm. in particular ways and with the collection of more data about them the landlords will be able to see you know, in inverted commas, what type of renter they are. So previously, if you'd had a slip in your rent or something, you could hide that from a landlord with RentBerry potentially pulling in multiple data sources. They'll be able to see all of the inconsistencies in your rental profile and that could potentially be a bad thing. So it's it's an interesting platform that's getting a lot of mixed press. I I don't think it's a great leveller. It puts itself out there. It's, so I'm wondering if there's a a sort of an a service that can oppose that or even along mm. those lines. I know a lot of my own experiences and a lot of uh, anecdotal experience from housing round groups that we've conducted is how terrible our landlords are and our real estate agents are at delivering a service. Um, for example, that's one of the reasons why some of the startups I talked to in the States early in this year were getting so much traction is because they're like, we're available to contact. You can contact us through this app. It will get sorted. Mm. So I think if we could perhaps have an online platform where we can register our complaints, it's there, it's detailed. The real estate agencies or landlords have to act on that mm. because I can tell you, we've been emailing our agent for about two years now and our window still isn't fixed. Do you think it'll be... Uh, market pressure on the private sector or do you think it will be bottom-up community groups that will drive these technologies or some combination of that? I think probably a combination. I would like to think that the community groups, that we have enough energy to get that going, but I think particularly in the Sydney context, there has to be some sort of market pressure to enact some sort of change. And I guess that's the whole... rationale for smart is it's not an add-on it's not going to do things on its own mm-hmm. it's only going to work through the normal means of organizing in the city the more normal means of operating in the city and smart sort of becomes technologies apps platforms become woven through those practices and if they can be harnessed by a group trying to agitate for more affordable housing or better rental conditions then that's how they're going to work it's not as if they're going to somehow come down from upon high mm-hmm. and just solve everything they need to be woven through what people are already doing and that also means that they could also bring with them some of the discrimination and disadvantage Mm -hmm. that already exists in society so I guess part of the challenge is to making smart address things like discrimination and disadvantage Mm -hmm. I think that's the uh, challenge that you're both working with I think so and again you've got that issue of who has access to the technology and the skills to put these profiles up to engage with that technology so again you're excluding certain sectors of the community from access to mm. housing yeah do you think maybe this is a conversation about rental in general but some of the the national conversations at the moment is that we are the idea that Australia is a nation of homeowners is probably a 20th century notion mm. and that there will be a transformation in the way that we live mm. in general. And that, that's what excites me so much about Sophie's work, generation rent, mm-hmm. and can technology you know, actually play a role in delivering some solutions to this yeah. dilemma? And you could imagine um, pets, you know, if we you put your pet CV up 
if yeah. that's available electronically, exactly. make I've, it much easier. I've had to write CVs for pets before for mm. friends, and yeah, so you can have that, or even being able to, I guess, list by the landlord how open they are to pet that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. fascinating because we just had yeah. Emma Power on the show mm. talking about pets and rental. Oh. Robin, I'm very interested in what a disrupted transport system might look like. What what would that look like? Well, in the Sydney context, a disrupted transport system is one where the car doesn't rule. Um, I'm being realistic. That's not going to happen in this city. We announced we love again. Our cars. We love our cars <laughs> and we love our motorways. Um, but a disrupted transport system, or and I guess what I would probably call a smart mobility system, is one where there are multiple modes, and that each of the, all those modes are connected, um, communication and technologically, either through a, a smart card. So, if we had an Opal card in this city, so that would work on a bus, a train, what well, does already, but it could perhaps work on a motorway. It might give you access to a car share. It might give you access to a bike share. So that sort of that that sort of system through that seamless integration across systems would work, and we know that that's one of the key disruptions that happened to transport is that we've got these cards that will allow us to access um, transport. We also there's been in the recently there's been some uh, some person in Sydney who's had their Opal card embedded into their hand or the chip embedded Excellent. into their hand. So the transport cyborg. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, so th- I guess. Uh, so a disrupted transport system is one where you can have, for me, is one where not one mode is dominant and it's, it's um, possible technologically to, to access all modes equally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seems to me then that this is not just a technological change, that that would also require a subjective or change in the way we think about, in this particular case, transport. So what is the connection between changing the minds of the population at the same time as changing the technology do those things go together are they but that's the whole often they don't and that's the challenge is that um technology is sometimes quite confronting and it's different that's the whole point of a technological disruption so in fact sophie and i've just finished writing a piece on car sharing where we were talking to car sharers uh about their experience and things like you use a car share by using a smart card to open the car and then you just grab the key. Or the idea that someone that, you know, got this card that will just access you the car, that somehow sometimes if things doesn't work with the car share car, you ring the car share company and they will unlock the car for you and suddenly you've got access or the car's not there. So technology, the idea, it distances you, in the car sharing case, your distance from, you don't have a key, it's really quite disruptive to your habits. So people need to learn mm. how, and that's the classic early adoption innovators thing. That, that's what we do. And but it, it quickly be so. What ha- needs to happen is that they needs to become part of habit. It's the same thing with Opal cards. The amount of people that have Opal cards on their phone, in their phone, and just it's just that's just what you have now. Mm. So if we looked forward ten years into the disruptive space of the future, what would the disruptive housing look like, Sophie? Or the disrupted house. The disrupted house. Um, If I was cheeky, I would say it would be affordable and sustainable. Um, That would be great. And shared. And shared. Um, The disrupted house to me, I would, again, it's kind of, and and it's this kind of thing when people talk about smart houses, like this totally super connected space. 
But to me, it'll just implement in the ways it has little bit by little bit. So for me, um, for any of the people who, who love technology, it's probably having all of your systems still connected so you can program for your heater to go on or the air conditioning turn on. So that kind of, I guess, coded questions and instructions to operate your house. But in terms of disruption, I think for the market and for sharing, it would be, I read an article somewhere which was on an alternative housing model, which said housing as a service. So this kind of, if we're going that way, then I really do see that housing becomes it's already a commodity, but more like a service, like your Uber or your, um, was it WeWork becomes WeHouse or something. So it's flexible, it's uh, lease periods aren't definite, you know, you can have a month or so, you can move cities um, and just slot into a house straight away. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, yeah, it's that mobility, it's that flexibility and a bottom line that you know you're going to get in terms of quality. As a housing researcher, that seems very like disconcerting for me the idea of that technological disrupt disruption have you talked about the smart renter of the future is that something that you've talked about as well i would love to i haven't really actually focused on the actual renter as such yet so that's a really good point but i do feel it will again be moving in that model part of that as well is also reflective, I guess, of, um, I guess, our workforce and economies at the moment. So a lot of people are on contracts. A lot of people have to move internationally or interstate for that. So I think the smart renter is somebody who's going to have to adapt to a flexible and yeah. mobile. I think living. we need a smart landlord to yeah. suit the smart renter. <laughs> I in think that so. Case. <laughs> I think so. A mobile, everybody, this flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. What about in the transport space? If we look forward ten years, where do you see this going? In a technological sense, the big thing on the transport landscape is driverless cars, autonomous vehicles. Um, There's some predictions are saying that they'll be on the road in five years, not necessarily in Australia. Uh, But guess what I see happening is that we we will have pockets in which there is incredible transport diversity supported by technology. And we see that in the inner cities of Australian cities now, where you have diverse modes, you'll have autonomous vehicles that will be able to do first and last mile deliveries, a whole series of things. But what that won't address is our suburban transport disadvantage. So people are less, there's less prediction going on about what's going to happen in the suburbs of the future, especially in Australian cities where our suburbs are sprawling and are car dependent. And I'm not sure what that's going to look like. And only the future will tell. Mm. Sophie and Robin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Dasha. So that's it for this week. But remember, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review via our iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.